0: Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 22, we're going to be working our way through Acts chapter 22, verse 22, through chapter 23, verse 11. Lord Jesus, we desire your presence in the Spirit. Holy Father, we thank you that you have removed all barriers from those of us who believe. All barriers between us and you are guilt, our godlessness indeed our animosity toward you and you did it justly in your son and you've given to us his righteousness oh we're so desperate for your spirit together on Sunday mornings alone at home in our prayer closets to really believe it Glorify your name. Glorify your name over these next 40 minutes or so. In our manifest experience of your presence. If, and many of us have been, if you've been a Christian long enough, we have known times of encouraging, faithful seasons of ministry. Witnessing the Lord really works in somebody. Counseling fellow believers through hard times. Encouraging Others, the Lord working through us. Family devotions, the response of others to our lives in Jesus is positive. They get saved. Their worship deepens. Their faith is built up. And then there are those times where it's the exact opposite. You go on for a while sometimes. Your life feels fruitless feels like nothing's going right and anything that you do it feels like your own life itself is just dry is dead bones we get emotionally and spiritually exhausted even those hard times those discouraging times, they are ordained by our loving Savior. And many of you you think to yourself about your Christian life. Isn't it true that often doesn't stay forever that the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus by the presence of the Holy Spirit comes to you in a special way. He comes with a kind of intimacy that is not an everyday intimacy. He comes with encouragement to you. I think so. We're going to end there. But what I want to do first is is begin this sermon at the end of the passage. Before we go back through this passage and all the misery and the terrifying and discouraging events in the Apostle Paul's life here. Paul had been longing and he had been planning to get to Jerusalem for many years in order to preach to the Jewish Christians there and to preach to the unbelieving Jews and the leadership, and it all goes very, very bad. And there is no physical fruit. Paul is bruised and cut and hurting physically with a constant threat of death just hanging over him as he sits in a jail cell. And we read in chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I'm going to get you there to Rome. Gosh, that had to be encouraging because he really doubted it at this point. In your deepest feelings of discouragement and hopelessness, hear the word of the Lord. Draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. So let's go to our passage. Remember the context over the last few weeks. The Apostle Paul's finally made it to Jerusalem. He's in the temple. Some of his enemies from Ephesus see him there. They cry out for the crowd to help them grab him and drag him out of the gate, and they're slugging him and they're kicking him. And they're beating him almost to death before the Roman Tribune saves his life. And then Paul is bloodied and bruised. And he asked permission. Can I speak to these people who just tried to kill me? And he's granted permission. And he gives his testimony of where he came from and how Jesus converted him. And the crowd, astonishingly, was listening to him. And then, in the testimony, Paul gets to the part where he tells the crowd of God's grace and goodness that it extends to non-Jews. And violence, and loud noise erupts again. Let's look at it. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 21 of chapter 22. Paul, speaking to the crowd, talks about years earlier while he's in Jerusalem, in the temple, and Jesus appeared to him and he said to him, and he says this, And Jesus said to me then, Go, meaning get out of Jerusalem, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then Luke says, Up to this word, They listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, this was blasphemous words to their ears, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So the crowd could not bear the idea that unclean Gentile sinners, unlike we works of the law practicing Jews, they couldn't bear the idea that they could be grafted into God's family and become children of Abraham and children of mercy and children of grace. So I want to just pause in the text and just, I want, just for a couple minutes and ask a question. Was Paul stupid Did he not understand his audience? I mean, if he did, why didn't he change the content of his words? Did he not know what would probably happen? And the answer is, he's not stupid. He knew his audience very well. But he also knew the true gospel and he knew that he was not allowed to change it. He was not allowed to change the core content of the gospel. The good news that Jesus himself commissioned him to preach. We live in a time when many teachers of the Bible try to change the message in order to make it more palatable, less offensive. And it's a fool's errand. Because the gospel is for sinners. And even those of us who are indwelt by the Spirit now, we're born again. We still have a sin nature. And so whether it's for us who... now, or before we're born again, and those out there who need Jesus, the sinful aspect of every human soul is, by definition, offended at the gospel. Paul is very much like you, a sinner, being saved by grace. He felt the temptation to leave certain things out of his preaching depending on his differing context whether to Gentiles whether to Jews when he was in Athens he knows the Greek mindset and the Greek philosophy about the physical world and the physical body but he did mention the physical bodily resurrection and as soon as he did it was over they laughed at him They mocked him. Paul didn't leave out truth for the sake of getting people to like his speeches. And it wasn't because Paul was trying to be obnoxious. It was because he loved the glory of God and he loved sinners. Oh, he felt the temptation. And he knew many were falling into this temptation quote-unquote gospel preachers. He said this in 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But we know the temptation. Okay, I added that part, but it's there. We know it, but we have renounced it. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or, or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul could have left out the truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to the Jews first, and from the Jews, and this is the truth of the gospel Jesus gave him, not just from the Jews, but because of. And from the rejection of the gospel by the Jews predominantly, then it goes to the Gentiles. He could have left that part out, at least while he's in the temple grounds in Jerusalem. But he would have been attempting to shape God to the culture. Instead of calling that culture to repentance, to turn Conforming God, conforming Christianity to the larger culture around us today is very tempting. Adapting the Bible to today's sexual revolution that is all around us might lead to less suffering and less mockery for Christians. But to do that would mean to be throwing away the gospel. The message that can save souls out there. Now, Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the tribune, Claudius Lysias, we know this later. He doesn't know what has really happened. Remember, Paul had been preaching in Aramaic. Maybe he knows a few Words, but it's not his language. Paul's preaching, he's watching it, he's got his soldiers with him, and then all of a sudden he just hears the crowd become very noisy and violent. And his whole job as the tribune is to keep the peace in Jerusalem, and this is anything but peaceful. He knows this crowd wants to kill this man. And so Saves Paul again, brings him up to the barracks. He needs to find out what's happening. And so he orders those under him, start to torture him and get out of him what you can. And that's what we read next in verse 24. So the tribune was saying that he, Paul, should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion, who's over a hundred soldiers, who was standing right there, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul had a. He was a citizen. Most people weren't. Paul had not had a trial, he wasn't found guilty. He was not condemned. What's happening is illegal. When the centurion heard it, he went to the tribune and he said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. Paul clearly had his papers on him. So the tribune came and he said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Of money. Paul said. But I am a citizen by birth. Because his parents were. And therefore so was he. So those who were about to examine him. Okay. That's a nice word. To torture him. Withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. It cost him his job. For he realized. That Paul was a Roman citizen that he had bound him to be whipped. Now, we know through our journey through the book of Acts, Paul is always willing to suffer for the gospel if need be. But he did not suffer unnecessarily. Suffering for the sake of suffering is not glorifying to God. Sometimes God's providence leads His people into suffering. And sometimes God's providence leads them to avoid suffering. Like here with Paul's citizenship, it is his get out of torture free card and he played it. Now after a night's sleep, Claudius, he's got to get to the bottom of this. Why do the Jews want this man dead? What is it about? So he's got a plan. Read on verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down. And set him before them. So he brings Paul down to the Jewish Sanhedrin. The leading council of the Jews in Jerusalem in Judea. It's the same council that condemned Jesus. Same council that had Peter in John punished. Claudius is thinking maybe now if I can somehow get the interpretation of what's happening here before the Jewish council, the leadership of the Jews instead of a mob of thousands, we can find out what this is all about. And Paul's given the floor and he takes a long pause and I'm going to say right here, I'm convinced Paul's going to do the same thing. He's going to talk about his life. He's going to give them his testimony. He is going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And so he gets eye contact with them. Maybe 70 leaders here. Look at verse 1, chapter 23. And looking intently... At the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him, Strike him on the mouth. And they did. And then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sitting to judge me according to the law. And yet contrary to the law. You order me to be struck. Those who stood by him. Said. Would you revile. God's high priest. Paul said. I did not know brothers. That he was the high priest. For it is written. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So you got to get it now. Paul, he's been accused of defiling the temple by bringing Gentiles in there, which he did not do. They know Paul's a Jew, and they know Paul is a converted Christian. For Ananias to hear Paul begin and say essentially this, I'm a good Jew. I have always been, and I am Today. I serve God with a clean conscience. What Ananias is hearing, Josephus lets us know in history, first century historian, this was a really bad high priest. He's a bad dude. But for him, those words, I'm a good Jew and a good Christian are an oxymoron. It's like blasphemy to him. So he commands those who are standing right by Paul, Slug him in the face. And Paul is shocked by the whole thing. He's already has been beaten up. He's already hurting. He's given this speech. He just begins and then, bam, that hurt. And then he snapped. He lost it. He blew it. He lost his cool, and he retaliated with cutting, accusatory words. God's going to strike you. He's angry. Of course, he calls on the whitewashed wall. It's his way of saying, you hypocrite. The, the Jews would paint the outside of tombs white, so they're very easy to see and say, that's a tomb. Don't touch it, Jew. Because if they did, they'd become unclean. you got to go through this long, laborious process of cleansing. And that, that's a hassle. So, and you know, Jesus used this term, didn't he, when he's talking also to those he considered hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. Yeah, you're very pretty on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's Bones. What a stark difference between the way Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin and Paul. Jesus spoke very little. Most of the time he didn't speak at all, even though they wanted him to. He just kept his mouth shut. But he did speak and he spoke calmly and he spoke clearly. And Peter, reflecting on that, writes this in 1 Peter 2 about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Paul did. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I think we can relate much easier to Paul. He got angry. He lashed out at the high priest. For some, no one really knows why. How did he not know that's the high priest? We don't know. Luke just tells us that's what Paul said. He didn't know that that command came from the high priest. But then he apologized. He knew he was wrong, not because this is a great man, because it's an office of leadership laid out in the Bible, and you are not, according to the law of Moses, to speak like that to someone who stands in that office. He took back his disrespectful comment. Luke is real. (laughs) He's real with the lives of Christians. The whole Bible Is real. It's real. It's candid about the lives of sinners who are being saved by grace. Whether it's an apostle or one of the patriarchs, Abraham or Jacob, their sin is out there. Whether it's David and his adultery and his murder, or Jonah's whining, or Elijah's pouting, or Peter's violence. Or his denying that he even knows Jesus. The scriptures are real. About the saints. Paul knew the Old Testament. The law well. And he quotes it. And he admits he was wrong. Now at that point then. Then. Evidently, Paul realized, in this context now, the atmosphere is not here for me, Paul, to preach the gospel. It's not going to work, and it's not going to happen. And so he sees a way to get out of this very dangerous situation. And so he lights this big stick match, and he throws it on the gasoline, of the division that he knows theologically that is in the council that's he's standing before. Verse 6. So now when Paul perceived that one part of the council were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he stopped. I mean, if we were to try to in any way get a feel for it, it would be like in our day within the church world. Those of us who consider us conservative theologically as Christians, evangelicals, and this, this liberal theology and mainline denomination, and etc., that are ordaining homosexuals, they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, etc. We have almost nothing in common, okay? Though they'll call themselves a Christian. That's here. The Sadducees are the liberals. The Pharisees are the fundamentalist conservatives, And so Paul cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial, which is true. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor and argument, it's very loud now, it arose. And some of the scribes or scholars of the Pharisee party stood up. And contended sharply. This is amazing. We find nothing wrong in this man. Paul. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became physical. Got violent. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so Paul's plan, it worked. He he turned the council, he turned them against each other, which turned the focus away from himself. It got physically violent. Paul's rescued by Claudius again and he's taken up into the tower of Antonio and thrown back into jail. And there he sits for another hour and two hours and three hours. There he sits all afternoon and evening long. This has to be one of the darkest days of Paul's life. He, he's had a number of them. This is the nadir. This is low. For years, Paul had been hoping and planning to get to Jerusalem in order to give fruitful witness there. He's in Jerusalem. He's in the Tower of Atonia connected to the temple there, the outer wall. When he arrived eight or nine days earlier, he found that he had many enemies within the church in Jerusalem. And these legalistic believers They didn't like Paul at all. They didn't like him because of the way he preached the gospel to the Gentiles. They liked most of it, but then Paul would say these things about the gospel they totally disagreed with, hated that he's doing that, and the way he lived among the Gentiles... And not only that, his hope of evangelism to the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem and to the leadership of the Jews and those unbelievers and the Sanhedrin, which he used to be associated with, all of that has come crumbling down. He's been brutally beaten and kicked and slugged. His dream of a great work of the Lord here in Jerusalem. The city of the temple. It's gone. And his plans, his hopes, which he has had now for many years. And he's written about them before this happened. His hope to finally then get to the capital city of the empire, Rome, in order to preach the gospel. There it's looking Hopeless. He knows there's a good chance he'll be dead in a few days. Discouragement, fear, and anxiety. As he sits in that jail cell are his constant companions. Hour after hour throughout that afternoon and that evening, he's got a pit in his stomach. Somehow he gets some sleep that night. Only to wake up again the next morning to the same nightmare of reality. His heart is grieved. He's physically and emotionally and he is spiritually exhausted. Have you ever been there? In the quiet of your own prayer closet, have you ever wondered, why is my world crumbling? Around me, this is not the way I had it planned. Lord Where are you? I bet you have. It's part of your journey down here. Paul must have felt very much like Elijah curled up into the fetal position cave hiding. Hour after hour after hour that next day Paul battles feelings of deep anxiety and humiliation and loneliness and abandonment and a sense of hopelessness for the ministry that he thought the Lord had for him. And then... What would the Lord Jesus do for Paul? It's right there in verse 11, chapter 23. The following night. Sometimes the Lord chooses not to do this in the morning. Let you go 12 more hours. The following night, the Lord, this refers to Jesus, stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you If testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. He's not going to die there. He knows it now. This was a resurrection appearance. Wasn't seeing the Lord in a vision or a dream here like he had at other times. This is like Damascus Road. This he stood by, it's the same word that the same author Luke uses two times in the Gospel of Luke to describe the appearance of angels. Same word. The Lord appeared, stood there. Paul saw him and then Jesus spoke. Take. came in a very special way to Paul here. Paul needed it. Jesus spoke to him. So came me clearly. Without physical resurrection appearance like this Hasn't the Lord come to you also at times in your Christian life with encouragement? I bet he has. And he will again. I've had the Lord say to me not audibly but tangibly through the presence of the Spirit in unusual ways, I'm with you. You're mine. Take courage. Trust me. You are cloaked, Joe, in my righteousness." This must have felt to Paul like he was Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego in that burning, blazing, fiery furnace. Paul was not willing to compromise the gospel and neither were those three young men ever going to worship false gods in order to save their lives. But instead they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve He's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But, if not, we burn up. Be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then something happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. (laughs) Paul's experience that we see in our passage happened to them. They were chained up. They were taken over to the furnace. And they were thrown in. And then the king, he looked in and he said, I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Let me make a guaranteed statement to you. Jesus does not show up. He doesn't show up and encourage his perfect, sinless sheep ever. He doesn't have any. But he's with his people. He's with His people who love Him, who walk with Him, who pursue Him, who sin and lambast the high priest. And then repent and apologize. He comes to them. He comes to them in their hardest times and He stands with them. And He says, He is standing by your side saying take courage believer take heart while you were yet hating God I died for you to remove all your guilt and to grant you freely my righteousness that is one word in Greek. take courage, two words in English. It's only used five times in the Bible and all five are in Jesus' mouth. one right here. and I want to read the other four very brief and I want you to hear. Our Lord, speak to your fears and anxieties and loneliness and confusion. First was when he called to that guy who was totally paralyzed and on a mat. He said to him, take courage, my son, for your sins are forgiven. To that woman who had that hemorrhage of just bleeding for 12 long years. He says to her, take courage, daughter. Your faith has made you well. To his frightened apostles in that boat... In the midst of a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, and then they see what they think is a ghost walking on the water toward them. Jesus cried out to them, Take courage, it is I. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then, sitting at that meal, hours before his crucifixion, he says, to the guys, take courage. I have overcome the world. So, dear Christian, dear lover of Jesus in this great gospel, he has gone to the cross in order to make all the promises of God that are laid out in Scripture, yes, and amen. And so this morning, take this one. Take the word of the Lord home with you from Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Take heart. Take courage. Fear not. Our Lord Jesus says to us. For you. Father, we thank you for such a gift. No greater gift could ever be given than the gift of your son to sinners like us. You didn't spare him, but you gave him and you delivered him up for us all. And therefore, if you're for us, who could possibly succeed? in their being against us? And the answer is no one and no thing, for nothing shall ever, ever be able to separate us from your love to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you.